0: Attention listeners, this podcast contains graphic content, explicit language, frightening stories, and other adult content not suitable for listeners under the age of 18. This podcast may also contain triggers for suicide, depression, and other types of mental illness. Listener discretion is advised. You've done it now. Your curiosity has betrayed you. You've made it to the end of the woods, and you have stumbled upon the monster's lair. I am the monster himself, J.D. Hutchins, and this is where I dwell. I live here with my bevy of strange... Fiendish folks, friends, and other monsters. You're brave enough to dive into the depths with us. There's only one problem. Once you're here, there's no leaving until I let you. So sit back and get comfortable if you can. Listen to my strange tales, my terrifying horror stories, and my weird and wonderful facts, and enjoy. This is The Monster's Lair. show. sure. Welcome into the Monster's Lair. This is episode 13, part 4. This is a continuation of a mini series. If this is your first time tuning in to listen to the show and you're not a regular member of the Monsterage, I recommend going back three episodes to find part 1 of Demons and Demonic Possession. Alright, folks, welcome back. This is part 4, episode 13 the mini-series finale on demons and demonic possession. This is your host, the man with the plan, the monster himself, J.D. Hutchins. And finally, after 13 episodes, I finally have Mr. Co-host himself, Tom the Nightmare, side-by-side side with me in the studio.
1: If boy took the lucky number 13, might as well be our lucky number, right?
0: pretty much brother but it's good to have you here in the lair with me finally about time this is gonna be a benchmark episode for the show we're gonna wrap it up on demons and demonic possession in this episode and we're gonna end the episode with a cool ass story that i can't wait to read and get your feedback on so without further ado can't hardly contain my excitement anymore let's get this thing underway Now, you've gone too far. You're stuck in the monster's lair with the trailer park monster himself, J.D. Hutchins. Enjoy. I'm now going to tell you the story. Of the exorcism of george lukens aka the Yatton demoniac in 1787 george lukens was 44 and lived in the village of Yatton, just outside bristol he was originally trained as a tailor but earned his living as a common carrier which is a singer actor of mummers plays which are plays performed by troops of amateur actors, traditionally all-male, known as mummers. It refers particularly to a play in which a number of characters are called on stage, two of whom engage in a combat, the loser being revived by a doctor character. He was also a ventriloquist. He was described by his neighbors as being of extraordinary good character from his childhood, and had constantly attended church and the sacrament. Beginning in 1769, he had suffered from fits of an alarming nature, which most likely was epilepsy. Lukens claimed that he had been fine until he was performing an old mummer's play at Christmas time when he had felt a divine slap which felled him to the ground and left him possessed by demons. According to a witness, Lukens was performing late one night at the house of a Mr. Love and after a number of strong beers became inebriated. In fact, he was so drunk he was escorted home by two neighbors named Avery and Reed. After this night of drinking, Lukens began experiencing seizures where he could not speak. Stories about Lukens also asserted that he would make strange animal noises, including barking like a dog. He would also argue with himself and act violently. The fits always began and ended with a strong agitation of the right hand. Witnesses also reported that Lukens cannot hear any virtuous or expression used without pain or horror. Basically, he had an aversion to anything holy. Crosses, holy water, things of that nature. Lucans is also described as being an emaciated and exhausted figure. In spite of violent attacks, Lucans continued working, but gradually the need for medical treatment became apparent. According to Reverend Wake, whose late uncle had been vicar of nearby Blackwell, England, in 1775, the parish gathered funds and sent Lukens for examination at St. George's Hospital in London for almost 20 weeks. According to hospital records, Lukens was admitted to the hospital on May 3rd, 1775 and was discharged October 8th, 1775. While in the hospital, Lukens was allowed visitors and experienced no seizures. However, doctors at the hospital were unable to solve Lucan's epilepsy and pronounced him incurable. As Lucan's condition worsened, Lucan was placed under the care of a surgeon from Rington named Smith. Unfortunately, Smith was also unable to improve Lucan's condition. A Dr. James of Rington and a Dr. Short of Bristol examined Lukens and found him to be afflicted with a grievous hypochondriac disorder. A doctor named Whitechurch in Blackwell, England prescribed laudanum, but even with extremely heavy doses, there was no relief. It is alleged that during the time Lukens was consulting doctors, He also sought the help of several cunning folk, or magic practitioners, to solve his problem. A woman from Bedminster prescribed rolled-up brown paper with pins driven in and then burnt in a fire during the fits. Other cunning folk insisted that infirmed old people had bewitched him. Lukens was so convinced of a magical cause that he even attacked an elderly woman in an attempt to draw her blood. Following his hospital stay, Lukens lived at home in Yatin for a short while. Unable to handle Lukens, eventually George, was forced to move into the house of Richard Beecham. While staying with Beecham, the fits seemed to end. Even after moving out from the Beecham homes, Lukens was episode free for over a decade. Sadly, however, in 1787, the seizures returned. This time, instead of claiming that attacks had come from witchcraft, Lukens asserted the cause was possession by the devil. On June 7th, 1787, Lukens was staying at home on Red Clift Street, owned by a man named Westcote. While there, Lukens experienced an event which was described by witnesses as having left them in a state of horror and amazement at the sounds and expressions that they heard. Sarah Barber knew of Lucan's condition because her husband was from the same village. She approached her Anglican vicar, Rev. Joseph Easterbrook, on Saturday, May 31, 1788, and asked him for help. Barber claimed that she had seen a poor man afflicted with a most extraordinary malady who when in fits would sing and scream in various sounds, scarcely human, and which fits to her knowledge, he had been troubled with for near eighteen years. He had tried several medical gentlemen, but in vain. The people of Yatin conceived him to be bewitched, that he himself declared he was possessed of seven devils, and that nothing could relieve him but the united prayers of seven clergymen, who could ask deliverance for him in faith. The claim of seven demons is significant because of the New Testament assertion that Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. According to the Easterbrook's writings, he was, "...little expecting that an attention to such a pitiable case would have produced such a torrent of opposition a liberal abuse upon the parties concerned, and his relief. Reverend Easterbrook met with Lucan several times in the Church to determine if he was indeed possessed. Once such a determination was made, under the 1604 canons of the Church of England, Episcopal authority was required to perform an exorcism. Easterbrook asked for a meeting to discuss the remedy to the possession. In addition to Easterbrook, three other priests attended. Reverend Richard Symes, rector of St. Werberg, Reverend Robbins, the precentor of the cathedral, and Reverend James Brown, rector of Portishead. Ultimately, Easterbrook's petition to perform the exorcism was rejected. Even so, Easterbrook continued in his attempts to get Lucans cured and contacted the Anglican priest Reverend John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodists' movement. While Wesley declined to participate, six other priests agreed to perform the exorcism. A committee of Wesleyan ministers was assembled to make preparations. At 11 a.m., on Friday, the 13th of June, 1787, Easterbrook assembled seven witnesses and six Wesleyan ministers to perform the exorcism in the vestry room of the temple church. The participants at the exorcism were Reverend Joseph Easterbrook, Reverend John Broadbent, Reverend John Walton, Reverend Jeremiah Brettel, Reverend Benjamin Rhodes, Reverend Thomas McGurry, Reverend William Hunt O.J. Westcote, and witnesses J. Lard, T. Delvy, Rees, Deverell, Tucker, Guire, and Nathaniel Gifford. When the priest began singing hymns, Lucan's face distorted. His body began to spasm and he was subject to strange agitations. At times, Lukens would speak in a deep, hoarse, hollow tone, claiming to be under the influence of an invisible agent. Lukens would shout blasphemes in other voices, both male and female. He would sing and laugh in these voices, and periodically declare himself to be the devil. Lucans then vowed eternal vengeance on the miserable objects on those present for daring to oppose him and commanded his faithful and obedient servants to appear and take their stations. Lucans became violent and it was difficult for two strong men to hold them. As the priest prayed, Lucans sang a te deum to the devil. And different voices saying, We praise thee, O devil, we acknowledge thee to be supreme governor. One priest demanded that Lucans speak the name of Jesus. Lucans would reply, I am the devil, instead. A faint voice also seemed to say, Why don't you abjure? which means to renounce your faith and leave the church. The priests commanded in the name of the Trinity that the evil depart. Lucans would also swear, by his infernal din, that he would not leave. The demon responded, Must I give up my power? Then Lucans began howling. As the priests continued their prayers, Lucan shouted, Our master has deceived us! Where shall we go? To hell, and return no more to torment this man, the priest replied. After two hours of repeated prayers, Lucans announced in his own voice, "Blessed Jesus! Then he praised God for deliverance, and said the Lord's Prayer. After that point, Lukens seemed to experience no other issues. At the time of the exorcism, many writers asserted that Lukens was an imposter. One critic of the exorcism as a local surgeon named Samuel Norman who wrote and printed a pamphlet called Authentic Anecdotes of George Lucan's The Yatin Demoniac? For his part, Norman led a vocal opposition showering ridicule on the clergy that had been duped by Lucan's. Norman also asserted that another motivation for Lucan's deception could be an excuse for the return of the Roman Catholics. Witnesses to Lucan's events asserted in publications that his first seizure was simply a fit of drunkenness. Lukens always predicted his fits prior to their occurrence. While the fits would always begin with a clenched hand, and every one of which except in singing, he performed not more than most active young people can easily do. After money was collected for him, he got very suddenly well. As to whatever became of George Lukens, the history is slightly confused. In 1882, Nichols and Taylor asserted in their work that Lukens lived a pious life and no longer experienced seizures. He is also said to have become a respected member of Wesleyan society in 1798. Reverend Volton who attended his exorcism, in his writings claimed that the following the exorcism, Lukens was employed as a bill sticker by R. Edwards. A Lovell satire entitled Bristol mentions Lukens. Lo, Lukens comes, and with him comes a train, of Parsons famous for lack of brain, With owl-like faces and with raven coats, their solemn step their solemn task denotes. By exorcism, prayers, and rebukings to drive the seven sturdy devils out of Lukens. So what do you guys think about George Lukens, the Yatan Demoniac? Is this a real... Authentic possession? Is this a conspiracy by the priests to bring back Roman Catholicism? Or is this a manipulation by George Lukens, who was a well-known dramatic actor, a well-known ventriloquist, which means he was capable of doing voices and throwing his voice, which could be useful in the event of faking an exorcism? And, he, you know, he was just known around the towns that he lived in as eccentric, as unique, one of a kind. And there was a span, that 10-year period, that decade, where he did not have any symptoms, any seizures, or anything whatsoever. And all he really did to make a change was move to a different residence. It makes you wonder what's really going on there. If you guys want to give me your opinion... Hit us up on social media, email us, get a hold of us somehow, let us know what you guys think. If you'd like to contact us at The Monster's Lair, you can find our main hub at anchor.fm slash If you're more of a social media correspondent type person, you can locate us on Instagram at official. If you prefer to communicate via email, you can email me directly at jdhutch, the number one at hotmail.com. Once again, that's jdhutch, the number one at hotmail.com. Jdhutch, the number one at hotmail.com. As always, thank you guys all for listening. Thank you all for your continued support and this passion project with my friend Tommy. We're having a great time doing this podcast, and I hope you guys are having just as good time listening to this podcast and enjoying the episodes. Please go and check us out on our main hub at Anchor, anchor.fm slash Lair. There you can read a bio about the show. You can hear and see all of our episodes that we've posted thus far. You can check out other sites that we stream to. You can listen to us through a link on Spotify. And if you're so inclined, you can um, produce the podcast directly by offering us financial support through a link that we have there. We're more than happy with you guys just coming through and listening to the episodes and sharing them with your friends and family who have the same interest as you and the paranormal. So thanks, guys. We appreciate you all being in the Monsterage. With all that being said, let's keep this episode moving, shall we? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, You anoint mine head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.
1: Welcome fellow listeners and followers of the Monsters there, this is finally your co-host, Tom the Nightmare. Today we're going to go over demons from all around the world. The first portion I'm going to read or talk about is going to be based on Christianity and Catholicism. They are not the only religions who have tales and lore of demonic entities that are capable of possession. Just about every major religion from every region of the globe has a tale or two about malevolent entities that serve a greater evil deity and wish nothing but pain, horror, anguish, and destruction on the human race. Allow me to tell you some tales of demons from all around the world. The ancient Egyptians believed in a demonic, ram-headed god who acted as a messenger to humankind and delivered word from the gods this demon was capable of both good and bad deeds and carried out what the good what the gods sorry about that commanded of him whether it fell into their spectrum or not in ancient egypt demons were divided into two categories guardians and wanderers guardians are tied to a specific place and their activity is topographically defined and their function can be benevolent to those given sacred knowledge. Demons guarded sacred places and the gates of the netherworld. The wanderers are the more insidious of the two types. These demons were said to be responsible for possession, mental illness, death, and plagues. Wanderers were agents of chaos, bringing hell on earth and causing torment and destruction. They served as executioners for the gods Ra and Osiris, and carried out their orders to punish humans. The Egyptians also believed in a subset of wanderers called Nightmare demons that were responsible for bad dreams and sleep issues. Another religion is also those in ancient Mesopotamia, and the Sumerians believed that the underworld was home to many types of demonic entities. Which were referred to as offspring of Aurali or Ariel. These demons could sometimes leave the underworld and terrorize humans. Among these demons was a specific type of demon called the Gala. Their purpose was to drag unfortunate mortals into Kur, the shadow realm or the underworld of the Sumerians that they believed in. The Sumerians also believed in demonic gods, Lamashtu was a demonic goddess with the head of a lion, the teeth of a donkey, naked breasts, and a hairy body and hand stained in blood with long fingers. She was believed to feed on the blood of infants and was blamed for miscarriages and cot deaths. Known today as SIDS or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, the Sumerians protected themselves against her by wearing amulets and talismans. The Babylonians and Assyrians both praised and feared the demonic god Pazuzu. He is often depicted as having a dog-like face with bulging eyes, a scaly bo- body, talons, and wings of a bird and snake-headed penis. He is regarded as evil, with his appearance was believed to be Lamashtu back into the underworld. Amulets bearing his image were placed in areas where infants dwelled and women in the culture who became pregnant would often bear the amulets and talismans with his head featured on them for their protection.
0: Now, Tommy, you read that part in there with the dude having a uh, snake-headed penis. Talk about the cobra that spits. No no,
1: no shit, man. Like, could you imagine having like a snake-headed penis? Like Every time you whoop it out, it just like... Time for sexy time. Yeah, no shit. That'd be terrifying. No wonder
0: she runs away every time he comes around.
1: I would too. Another case is in Jewish mythology. A dybuk, meaning adhere or cling, is a malicious, possessing spirit believed to be dislocated soul of the dead person. It supposedly leaves the host body once it it has accomplished its goal. Sometimes after being helped... But in recent times, the Dibbuk has been popular amongst those on the internet due to the Dibbuk boxes. These boxes is usually a wine box or other container which is said to be haunted by the Dibbuk. The boxes gained notoriety when one was auctioned on eBay with an accompanying horror story written by Kevin Mannis, and is the original inspiration for the 2012 film The Possession. So speaking about the 2012 film, The Possession, it's actually probably one of my favorite movies that comes across as like Demonic Possession. Um, I'm a huge cinemaphile, so I categorize my movies based on you know genre, factor, all of that stuff. And The Possession, I would definitely recommend checking out. Um, it has Jeffrey Dean Morgan. He stars in it as a father. Um, there's two girls and there's a reggae rapper known as a rap Jewish reggae rapper I haven't an Modest Yahoo and he's in it as well um, the movie itself it does have some slow points but once the energy picks up it's definitely a non-stop thrill ride I would definitely suggest checking it out it's probably one of my top 10 possession films um, it really brought back that that exorcist feel I got when I was a little kid. When my little, when I was little and my older brothers were like, hey, we're going to watch the gremlins. It wasn't gremlins, <laughs> it was the exorcist. And, um, definitely worth checking out. It's definitely one of my top 10. Persians, following the traditions of Agada, believe in demonic entities known as Shadim or Makizim or the Makizim. Or harmers, and the Ruhin. There are also Lilin, or night spirits, Dalani, or shade spirits, Kiheri, midday spirits, and Zafiri, or morning spirits. They also believe that demons brought famine, storms, and earthquakes. Now, again, I apologize for any mispronunciation, but this one actually fascinates the trailer park monster and myself. In Islam and Islamic related beliefs, the evil spirits are known as jinn, or afrit, or shayatin. Jinn are the inspiration for tales of genies. It is also said that jinn take on the attitude of those who summon them, good or evil. They are believed to be able to become invisible, and are believed to eat, drink, sleep, and breed with the opposite sex. Intercourse is not limited to the jinn alone, but also possible between human and jinn. However, the practice is despised in Islamic law. It is disputed whether or not such intercourse can result in offspring. They are believed to be natural, consisting of an element, undergoing change, And being bound in time and space, they resemble spirits or demons. Thus, they interact in a tactile manner with people and objects. The jinn are included and depicted as animals with a subtle body. The Kwanun Islam, written in 1832 by Sharif Jafar, states that their body constitutes ninety per cent of spirit and ten per cent of flesh. They resemble humans in many regards their subtle manner being the only main difference. They are said to be able to change their shape, move quickly, fly, enter human bodies, cause epilepsy and illness. Hence the temptation for humans to make them allies by means of magical practices. Aferit are identified as powerful demons or spirits of the dead which sometimes inhabit desolate places such as ruins or temples. The Shaitan are the source of the English name Satan, which, as we know, in the name of the devil, is the name of the devil. Satan are assumed to visit filthy or desecrate, desecrated places. They tempt humans into sin and to everything that is disapproved by society by their whisperings into their victim's heart. They are depicted as ugly and grotesque figures of hellfire. Native Americans, especially the Algonquin people, believed that there were demonic spirits or creatures called Wendigos that possessed people and turned them into cannibals. The Wendigo is described as a monster with some characteristics of a human or as a spirit, who has possessed a human being and made them become monsters. Its influence is said to evoke acts of murder, insatiable greed cannibalism, and the culture taboos against such behaviors. The creature lends its name to the controversial modern medical term Wendigo psychosis, described by psychiatrists as a culture-bound syndrome with symptoms such as intense cravings for human flesh and the fear of becoming a cannibal. In some indigenous communities, environmental destruction and insatiable greed are also seen as a manifestation of Wendigo psychosis. So when it comes to the Wendigo psychosis, you know, there's plenty, if not a lot of evidence stating that it's a real thing, like the trailer park monster, I agree, you know, the Florida bath salts guy, also known as Rudy Eugene, Rudy Eugene, um, he wound up being a homeless man by the name of Ronald Popa, it's, uh, where'd it go?
0: Yeah, Ronald Popper. Popper.
1: Now, Ronald actually survived being eaten, his face being eaten by Eugene. And actually had to go through medical treatment, some form of facial reconstruction surgery. You know, basically made his life that much harder. Um, But backtracking a little bit here. Uh, me and the monster here were looking up some research on Eugene, and based on his, you know, to- uh, toxicology report after he was fatally shot by the police, there was there was nothing found—no alcohol, no drugs in his system. So that led a lot of psychiatrists and medical doctors to believe it was the Wendigo psychosis. And thinking about it now. You know, with Ronald, the survivor, all I could think about is Mason Berger from Hannibal, who wound up being completely disfigured by Hannibal Lecter, requiring multiple surgeries, his face could not be reconstructed, and he wound up being the main antagonist in primarily all of the Hannibal movies um So it's just kind of nuts seeing how that goes into Hollywood as well as what's real life. So it's just one of those things that really throw,
0: makes you think. And another inter- interesting thing about it is, you know, everyone considers uh, Rudy Eugene as the famous bath salt Florida cannibal, also known as the Miami zombie, sometimes even referred to as the Causeway Cannibal. And, you know, the media put it out there that, oh, he was on basalts or he was on the synthetic drug. Well, will come to find out there was not a single thing in his system at the time of his death. And then, you know, the media likes to do that thing where they put stories out there, uh, but they don't always retract their stories or come out and say when they've been wronged or, you know, have put out inaccurate information out there. But with that being said, um, as my wonderful co-host Tom the Nightmare stated, you know, Ronnie Popo lived through the old orde- or the ordeal. Um, he now lives in a Medicaid uh, medical assisted facility. Um, you know, obviously he had to have some facial reconstruction surgery, but it's interesting that this Wendigo syndrome keeps popping up, and you know, the main symptom of the syndrome is cannibalistic tendencies, and here we have this guy, you know, in what year did that occur in 2012 2012 yeah so it just gives you some food for thought something to think about there and it is pretty disturbing
1: in Japanese culture many believe in the existence of yokai yokai range diversely from the benevolent to the mischievous or occasionally bring good fortune to those who encounter them yokai often possess possesses animal features such as kappa which looks similar to a turtle or the Tengu, which has wings, yet others appear mostly human-like. Some yokai look like inanimate objects, while others have no discernible shape. Yokai usually have spiritual or supernatural abilities, with shape-shifting being the most common. Yokai that shape-shift are called bakromono, or Obaki. Japanese folklorists and historians explain yokai as personifications of supernatural or unaccountable phenomena to their informants. In the Edo period, many artists, such as Toriyama Seiken, invented new yokai by taking inspiration from folk tales or purely from their own imagination. Today, several sets of yokai. Are mistaken to originate in more traditional folklore there is a yokai for almost everything in everyday existence in the japanese culture there's even a yokai that offers red or blue toilet paper in restrooms
0: all right tommy so in reading that and you know hearing and learning about some of the demons from around different world cultures is there any one that sticks out in your mind more than the others or did you learn something new from that, or do you have a favorite one out of all those ones that you just learned about?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of them, I mean, I've learned a, I learned learned a lot today. However, with the Native American culture, um, that one has stuck around as I'm Native American. Um, so the Wendigo, that one really stuck out the most because it not only affects, I guess, everyday life in the Native American but it also, it's into, like, pop culture in a sense. Like, um, Wolverine from, you know, the X-Men. One of his enemies is the Wendigo that he encounters in the Canadian wilderness. So, I mean, it's just kind of nuts reading all this stuff and researching it with you and seeing how, how it kind of connects in a sense, but each one has their differences. So, it was definitely something that really opened my eyes.
0: Yeah, to me, it's interesting to do research on all this stuff and then find the origins of where certain things come from. Like um, when you're reading the section about Islam, you have the Shayateen. You know, come to find out that's actually an origin and uh, etymology for the word Satan. You know, one of the names that Christian and westernized religions use um, to describe the devil. Um, You know, Satan appears over and over again in the Bible. Yeah. And, you know, from what I know, I've always been taught that, you know, Islam is older than Christianity and Catholicism. So it makes you wonder how much they actually borrowed from Islam. But then you fast forward hundreds of years later, and those two religions want nothing to do with each other. Exactly. Yet one of them is pulling lore and pulling characters for their stories out of you know the Lord that existed in the other religion that was already in place yeah so it's pretty interesting Uh, make sure you think and it's cool to learn some of these origin stories and where things come from yeah
1: it just seems like they can they can always agree on one thing and when it comes to evil entities it seems like a lot of it goes hand in hand whether you disagree or not on your god or your beliefs you will believe that the evil entities are some form of demon or some sort of evil spirit and that's what's kind of keeping a a fragile truce if if I could say that um, between these religions so it's really kind of nuts how something like that is playing a huge factor in those religions
0: and if you guys want to join in on this discussion and let us know what you guys think go ahead and hit us up on the social media platforms. You can find us on anchor.fm slash the Monsters Lair. That's our main hub, our main website, if you will. You can leave voice messages there for us that we will hear and that we will play in our future episodes coming up. If you guys want to go and uh, use that voice message as leaving a plug, you know you guys can chime in and say, hey, this is my name. You're listening to the Monsters Lair. We'll add those into our episodes as a clip in between segments. Um, you can also hit us up and message us anything you want on the Instagram. Uh, our Instagram page is the monsters layer official on Instagram. So definitely get involved in the discussion. Leave your comments. Um, you know, we just want to know what you guys think. If you have any stories pertaining to any of these types of entities or any of these demons we've discussed, it's definitely pertaining to that. So go ahead and, um, send those to us as well. And thanks for being a part of this with us, guys, and thanks for being in the Monster Rush. I want to thank the
1: 1,000-plus followers that are listening to us you know, every week. Um, without you guys, we would just be two guys talking nonsense. <laughs> but thanks again for following and being patient and waiting for me to actually come on as well. So, again, much appreciated, guys.
0: In a way, we still are two guys talking nonsense, but at least we're not talking to ourselves, so it does make us look a lot better. Exactly. So thank you guys for that.
1: Voodoo, run
0: for my magic. Woo woo. That's right, folks. We are now opening up the discussion for a very interesting part of world religions and demons from that religion. At this time, we will be speaking about everyone's favorite evil religion, voodoo. And also known in Haiti as Vodun. Specifically in voodoo, the spirits of voodoo, who are called the loa. Loa are known as kind of voodoo's demons, even though each one of them serves a unique purpose. And each one of them varies slightly. We're only going to talk about a couple of the more famous ones. Two of the big ones of the loa. Because if we sat here and talked about every single one, we could go on for episode after episode of episode. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to touch on the major ones. But we definitely have to include voodoo in there. We'd be remiss if we didn't. So let's get into it now. Loa are the spirits of Haitian Bodun and Louisiana voodoo. They're also referred to as Mr. Rez and the Invisibles, and are intermediaries between... Bondi, or in French, the bon Dieu, meaning good God, the supreme creator, who is distant from the world and humanity. Unlike saints or angels, however, they are not simply prayed to, they are served. They are each distinct beings with their own personal likes and dislikes, distinct sacred rhythms, songs, dances, ritual symbols, and special modes of service. Contrary to popular belief, the Loa are not deities in and of themselves. They are intermediaries for and dependent on a distant bondu. Etymology of the word Loa comes from the French les lois, which means the laws in English. An interesting thing in Voodoo religion and Haitian vodun is the syncretism. The enslaved Fon and Iwi in Haiti and Louisiana syncretized the Loa with the Catholic saints. So basically, to cover up the practice of their religion from their Catholic overlords, they disguised certain Loa in their religion under the guise of certain Catholic saints so that they wouldn't be persecuted or arrested for practicing their religion. Um, The Loa with Catholic saints, syncretized, the Vodun altars will frequently display images of Catholic saints. So if you've ever seen images depicted uh, down in Louisiana, especially in the French Quarter, there's a lot of uh, voodoo practitioners that have pictures of Catholic saints, and you wonder, well, are they Catholic or are they voodoo? Well, technically, they're both. They're just using the Catholic saints to symbolize whatever Loa they pray to or believe in. Um so the Vodun and voodoo altars will frequently display images of catholic saints for example papa legba is syncretized with saint peter or sometimes lazarus of bethany syncretism also works the other way in haitian Vodun, and many catholic saints have become loa in their own right most notably philomena the archangel michael jude the apostle and john the baptist are all syncretized loa In a ritual, the loa are called down by the hongan, the priest, or the mambo, another word for priestess, or the bokor and the Kaplata, or sorcerers and witches. To take part in the service, receive offerings, and grant requests, the loa arrive in the peristyle, or the ritual space. By mounting, or possessing, a horse, which is what they refer to a ritualist, and Creole, referred to as Chal, who is said to be ridden by the spirit. This can be quite a violent occurrence, as the uh, participant or the horse can flail about or can before falling to the ground. Some loa, such as Ayazan, will mount their horses very quietly. Certain loa display very distinctive behavior by which they can be recognized specific phrases, and specific actions. As soon as a loa is recognized, the symbols appropriate to them will be given for them. For example, her Freida will be given a glass of pink champagne. She is sprinkled with her perfumes, fine gifts of food, and will be presented to her where she even puts on her jewelry. Papa Legba will be given his cane, straw hat, and pipe. Baron Samedi will often fall flat on the floor, and voodoo saints around him will dress him and prepare him as they do in a morgue with cotton in his nose. Sculpture of the Loa Legba, who serves as the intermediary between the Loa and humanity. Legba often appears as an old man, but in Benin, Nigeria, and Togo, he is typically young and often horned and phallic. The sculpture of the Loa Legba, who serves as the intermediary between the Loa and humanity, Legba often appears as an old man. Uh, once Loa have arrived, fed, been served, and possibly given help or advice, they leave the peristyle or the ritual space. Certain Loa can become obstinate. For example, the Getty are notorious for wanting just one more smoke or one more drink. But it is the job of the hongen or mambo to keep the spirits in line while ensuring they are adequately provided for. There are many families or nanchons, which is French for nations, of Loa, Rada or also Radaha, Petro, Nago, Congo and Gedi, also Guedi or Gedi, among others. Then you have the Rada Loa. The rata loa are generally older, as many of these spirits come from Africa and the kingdom of Dahomey. The Rada loa are mainly water spirits, and many of the Rada loa are served with water. The Rada are cool in the sense they are less aggressive than the petro. They include legba, loco, aiazan, dambalawedo, aidaawedo, Maitris Mambo, Erzuli Freida Dahomi, La Sarine, and Agwe. Many of these spirits are served with white, sometimes in conjunction with another color. For example, Damballa may take white and green in some Vodun houses, or just white in others. Freda may take white and pink in one house, or pink and light blue in another. However, as a general rule of thumb, white is a color appropriate to all of the Rada. The Petro Loa, which would be the opposite of the Rada Loa, are generally the more fiery, occasionally aggressive, and warlike Loa, and are associated with Haiti and the New World. They include Azili Dantor, Marinette, and Metcalfour, also sometimes known as Mitre Carrefour or Master Crossroads. Their traditional color is red. As with Rada, additional colors may be associated with individual petro. Dantor will be served with red, but in different houses may additionally take navy blue, green, or gold. Congo loa or Cong- loa originating from the Congo region. These loa include many simbi loa. It also includes Marinette, a fierce and much feared female loa. There is also Nago loa, originating. From Yoruba land. This nation includes many of the Ogun Loa, most of whom use Ogu as a sort of family name. Examples include Ogu Foray, a marshal, soldier Iwa, Ogu Budargas, a wiser general, Ogu Panama, often viewed as a pilot, and an example of how Iwa can survive as the world changes, and Ogu Bal- Balenjo, who serves on the ship of the Rada Ocean. Iwa Agwe. The Geti Loa or Loa descending from Guere are the spirits of unclaimed or unremembered dead, thusly categorized separately from ones remembered ancestors. They are traditionally led by the barons Lacroix, Semeti, Sometre, Criminel, and Maman Brigitte. The Geti, as a family, are loud. Rude, although rarely to the point of real insult, sexual, and usually a lot of fun. As those who have lived already, they have nothing to fear and frequently will display how far past consequence and feeling they are when they come through in a service. Eating glass, raw chilies, and anointing their sensitive areas with chili rum, for example. Their traditional colors are black and purple. They are known for the Banda, a dance they perform that mimics sexual intercourse. Now, the man of the hour, the man with the power, the one and only Papa Legba. He is a Loa and Haitian vodun who serves as the intermediary between the Loa and humanity. Now this may sound familiar if you guys are familiar with the River Styx and the ferryman that carries the souls of the dead into the underworld. Papa Legba serves a very similar purpose. He stands at a spiritual crossroads and gives or denies permission to speak with spirits of Guinea, which is where the souls of the dead live, it's just another word for like hell or the uh, voodoo or Bodun underworld. It is controlled by the Loa, Loa Baron Samedi, or known in English more commonly as Baron Saturday, believed to be the symbol of life and death. He is the Loa of Death and the Gatekeeper of Guinea. There are seven gates which, through Guinea, can be entered, and is believed to speak all human languages. That seven number is an interesting a number that occurs again and again in demonic stories and demonic lore. Um, you know, in Dante's Inferno, you have the seven levels of hell. Similar here in Voodoo and Vodun culture, you have seven gates which you have to pass through, um, and you know. Due to Papa Legba being the ferryman or the uh, escorter of the dead into the underworld, he's commonly known to speak English, so he can communicate. Uh, In Haiti, Papa Legba is known as the Great Elocutioner. Legba facilitates communication, speech, and understanding, and his symbol that he is commonly associated with is dogs. Which is another interesting lore about him because if you know the story of what um, a black dog is said to indicate, it's a bad omen that you may die soon. And, you know, they associate that with him as well as he is the ferryman of the dead. Papa Legba's appearance. He usually appears as an old man on a crutch or with a cane, wearing a broad brimmed straw hat or black top hat and sometimes smoking a pipe or drinking sparkling water. The dog and the symbol that he takes on is sacred to him, so don't go around kicking any dogs because you're going to piss off Papa Legba, and you're going to piss me and the Tom the Nightmare off as well because we don't play that shit. Legba facilitates communication and speech, as we know. Um, Legba is a little grasshopper syncretized with St. Peter syncretized with saint lazarus and often syncretized with saint anthony alternate views on papa legba and benin nigeria and togo togo legba is viewed as a young and virile trickster deity not necessarily good or bad but he does like to cause mischief in their imagery he is often shown as a horned and phallic symbol and his shrine is usually located at the gate of the village in the countryside Alternatively he is dressed as Legba Atabon or Atabon Legba
1: <laughs> And that's
0: it for the Voodoo portion Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth I moved to London from India immediately after my wedding with Karan. My husband was living in London for six years and his then accommodation was a shady studio apartment which to me was simply uninhabitable. After a lot of coaxing he finally agreed to look for a new place. I had just started looking for a receptionist job so we planned to look for a humble one bedroom apartment. Along with applying for his jobs and preparing for interviews, house hunting became my day job. Two weeks into the search, I realized that for the price we were willing to pay, the only place we could afford was a shady studio apartment. I finally gave up this pursuit and instead decided to focus more on finding a job. Good things come to you when you stop looking. This is what I believe to be true when one day, while going through job openings, I got a pop up for a just posted house rental advertisement. I wish I knew then that this was far from good. It was going to be the biggest mistake of my life. I'm really lucky to be alive to tell the tale. We went to view this house the same day I saw the advertisement because I didn't want to lose the house to another early bird. One look at the house and I was mesmerized. For a person coming from second most populated country in the world, living in a beautiful and spacious three-bedroom Victorian house overlooking a garden away from the hubbub of the city was a dream come true. Karan's office too was only an hour's commute from there. The rent on this place was almost the same as we were paying for the studio apartment, so Karan didn't mind though he was a bit skeptic about such low rent so we checked the house thoroughly before signing the contract. The owner was British Indian, so he agreed to further reduce the rent for his fellow countrymen. We handed over one month's notice letter to end our tenancy to our landlord, and within that one month I got a decent paying receptionist job in a multinational company in central London. Just married, new country, new job, And a beautiful house. It felt so surreal, but this joy was to be short-lived. We moved into the house on a weekend since I was on probation and couldn't take leave. We just had a few possessions to move, but it wasn't a problem since the house was fully furnished and the previous tenants had left all of their kitchenware and a few other things behind. This surprised me as the crockery looked pretty expensive. When I asked Bige, our landlord, about this, he said that the couple living there before us had to move to Scotland in a hurry and thus didn't bother to carry fragile stuff with them. I was so naive to have believed him. If only I had tried to dig further or reach out to the previous tenants. Our first week in the house was pretty uneventful. It was spent arranging stuff and buying some supplies, Everything in the house worked as expected, washing machines, refrigerator, showers, and faucets, no signs of any leakage or creaking floorboards. Karan's suspicions about the house were finally put to rest, and he was convinced there was no foul play. I wish it had stayed that way, but things took an ugly turn the very next week. Quran used to play badminton early in the morning on weekends with his pals while I preferred sleeping till late. I woke up while Quran was about to leave for his game. He gave me a quick peck on my cheeks and left around 6 a.m. and it was still dark outside. I again went to sleep but soon woke up with a jerk from a nightmare when an ugly old woman was strangling me. I was covered in sweat and short of breath. It felt like the atmosphere had changed, the silence felt unusual, and it was obvious that something was off. I couldn't describe it really, it was just this feeling that something unnatural was happening, and just then, I heard someone crying. Initially, I thought I was still dreaming, and it was a part of the same nightmare. But really, it was happening. I tried to calm myself and look for the source of the sound. On concentrating hard, it sounded like a cat crying. In India, a cat crying is considered a bad omen. It usually means the death of a loved one. First the nightmare, and now this. I was very scared. I headed towards the source of the cacophony which had increased in volume and now sounded more like wailing I was more concerned than scared now what if the cat is really hurt and needs help the sound originated from the garden the gardens entrance was through a door in the kitchen I mustered up all the courage I could and turned the doorknob sitting on the fence opposite of me was the most grotesque hideous cat I had ever seen. It was an old, wrinkled, and skinny black cat with red eyes. As soon as it laid eyes on me, it stopped crying and began to hiss. I could see pure hatred in its eyes. It looked at me with murderous rage. I don't know about you, Tommy, but that sounds like any regular cat that I've ever seen.
1: Any usual stray, yeah.
0: I simply stood there staring at this devilish feline. I was still clutching the doorknob when, without warning, the grotesque being pounced at me from its sitting position with godspeed. This broke my spell and I quickly pushed the door shut in time. I expected to hear a thud from when the cat must have hit the door, but I didn't and neither did I hear it crying anymore. Everything had gotten eerily quiet, except my heart, which was beating so fast I thought it would come out of my chest. Quran came home to find me passed out on the kitchen floor. He splashed some water on my face and I struggled to open my eyes. I felt very weak, and standing up on my own took a lot of effort. I told Quran everything that had happened, but I could see it was hard for him to believe that a cat was planning to murder me. I couldn't blame him for that. Karan helped me calm down by suggesting we call Animal Control and that they would take care of this stray cat. I assumed it was a stray, as it was so skinny and dirty. After contacting Animal Control, Karan took me to the movies, followed by a lavish dinner to take my mind off the nasty episode. And it worked. I felt much better. We came back pretty late in the evening and directly went to bed. Sleep came almost as instantly as I was very exhausted. Around three in the morning, I was waking up to whispering noises. At first, I thought maybe Karan couldn't sleep and was watching TV. But then I turned and saw that he was out cold. I sat still on my bed and tried to figure out what I was hearing. It sounded like a woman chanting something in Sanskrit. I had never studied Sanskrit, but I could still make out some of the words, being a native of India. Amura, which means devil, and Amritara, which means immortality. This terrified me. Considering all that was happening, I could only think of one thing. The house must be haunted. The chanting grew louder now. I wasn't feeling so brave this time to get up and investigate. It took me a good five minutes to wake Haran up from his deep slumber and another five minutes to explain to him about the chanting sound. By the time he had fully awoken, the chanting had ceased, and by then he looked at me with some concern. I immediately regretted waking him. We were just married, and I didn't want him thinking his wife is a nutjob. Before he had a chance to comment, I lied, saying, I lied, saying that maybe the move and adjusting in my new job took a toll on me and that I just needed a little rest. He looked convinced and sympathetic, but I was very sure that I had not imagined any of this. The next three days passed without any incident, and I didn't see the cat again. I felt foolish for even thinking the house was haunted to begin with. Karan was a network security architect and was working on a critical project and in order to meet the deadline he was asked to work extra hours. I wasn't too happy about it. Even though nothing odd had happened lately, I was still pretty shaken up from last week. I came home from work and fixed myself a quick supper. Karan was going to have dinner at the office. With nothing much more to do after dinner, I planned to watch a movie. My laptop was not connecting to the Wi-Fi network. I'm pretty bad with computers, so I didn't try much and instead decided to connect a LAN, but couldn't find a LAN cable. Just when I was going to give up on my search, I thought of the basement. Maybe there are a few spare cables lying out there. This was the first time I was going to see the basement of the home. Karan and I never bothered to check the basement till now, as we didn't really have anything to be kept in the basement yet. I opened the basement door, and it creaked. It was pitch dark in there. I tried to feel for the light switch, and my hand finally found it. The light was very dim, but sufficient to see everything. There were fifteen or so steps down into the basement. The wooden steps creaked under my weight just like the beginning of some scary movies. The basement was pretty big, and all the stuff was covered with a white sheet, which was more brown than white, after all this time, and completely covered in dust. I lifted one of the covers, and what I saw filled me with dread. Lying on a big wooden table were many, many locks of hair Tied together by a red thread. Nails, human bones, pin-stuffed dolls, and a skull. There were cardboards with ancient symbols and a terrifying picture of a devilish creature sketched on them in what seemed like blood. I felt like I was going to throw up. The most upsetting part was that the blood seemed fresh. I had to get out of there. Suddenly the room felt very cold. The hair on the back of my neck stood up and I froze. I knew then that something was watching me. I could smell rot and the air had turned putrid. I felt some movement from the corner of my eye. I started shivering and naturally tears started rolling down my face. I felt so helpless then, but I was not going to give up. I gathered all the courage I could muster and turned around to run upstairs. That's when I saw the horrible face that I can never forget in this life. I still see her in my dreams. Standing near the foot of the stairs was a woman, or rather, she was a woman once. Now she was a hideous being, with long gray and dirty hair spread across her wrinkled face, red eyes glaring at me with hate, claws for feet, and gnarled shadowy hands with long and uneven fingernails. She was smiling at me, showing her rotten teeth. This made her look even more hideous. She was wearing a dirty and tattered black sari. I knew that when she was the cat who had once tried to murder me. She hissed at me and called out my name. Mira. It came out as a shriek and my blood ran cold. I knew then that I could not get out of here alive. There was no point in struggling. It's strange how during your last moments, your whole life flashes in front of you. How I wish I could tell Karan and my family one last time that I loved them. The hideous thing once again pounced at me, and this time, there was no door to shut. I fell on the floor, and she started strangling me while chanting mantras. I come from a very religious family and since I was a kid I've worn an amulet around my neck which wards off evil spirit. I never thought much of it and always kept it tucked under my blouse. During the struggle the amulet came off and the devil woman accidentally touched it and her hands began burning. She shrieked and hissed for a while and I could see fear in her eyes. She ran into the wall opposite me and completely vanished. It took a good ten seconds to register what had just happened, but I had to get out of there quick, fearing that she might come back at any second. I held the amulet in one hand and started crawling. I don't remember much of how I escaped from the house. Heron told me later he found me laying outside the house in the freezing cold. I was taken to the hospital, and it took me two whole days to recover. Physically, mentally, I was scarred for life. Quran was in the hospital with me the whole time as I wouldn't let him go into the house alone. This time Karan believed my story as he could see faint red marks on my neck. I could not live in that house anymore, we went back only once to get all of our stuff and Karan told me later that he saw a skinny black cat standing in the garden while leaving. Our lives went back to normal, but I was not going to rest until I knew what was wrong with the house. I never went back to the house personally to investigate, but I spoke with a couple of the previous tenants and found some old newspaper articles that gave me the story that I was looking for. The ghost haunting the house was Maya. She was Bija's great-grandmother and a tantric. She used to practice witchcraft in the basement and sacrifice small animals to please Amura, who in turn would have offered her immortality. But by sacrificing just animals, she would have returned as an animal, not as a human. To come back as a human... She would have had to have made human sacrifices. With an obsession to return back as a human after death, she chose to sacrifice her own son, but her husband came home in time to save him. He knew his wife was a tantric, but he didn't have much problem with her sacrificing animals, but not his only son. That was too much. He took his son with him and left her alone in the house. She died an old and spiteful woman, and my guess is she came back as a cat after her death. She is still out there looking for her next victim to please Amura. My request to anyone hearing this story is never rent or buy a house if the deal is too good to be true. This story was written by Monica Mina and was submitted to the Creepypasta.com by a fellow reader. To submit your very own creepypasta tale for consideration and publication to the site, visit the Creepypasta submissions page today. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because I'm blind to it all. My mind and my gun, they comfort me, because I know I'll kill my enemies when they come. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell on this earth forevermore. I walk beside the still waters, and they restore my soul, but I can't walk on the path of the right, because I'm wrong. Well I came upon a man at the top of a hill, call himself the savior of the human race. Said he come to save the world from destruction and pain. But I said, how can you save the world from itself? Because I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because I'm blind. I walk beside the still waters and they restore my soul. But I know when I die, my soul is damned. The Gospel of Through the Valley by Sean James
1: We here at the Monsters Layer care greatly about the physical and mental health of all of our listeners. We believe it is important to pursue these goals on a daily basis, to live a happy and healthy life. With this goal in mind, we have partnered with Phoenix Fit and are now brand ambassadors for the brand. FNX is an excellent company based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, right here in the good old US of A. FNX is committed to creating innovative supplements of the highest quality that provide focus for a productive morning, energy to thrive throughout the entire day, and performance supplements to reach new goals unique sleep and recovery form- recovery formulas to support any sport and healthy supplements to support any active lifestyle for all your years to come. The Monsters Lair are proud ambassadors of FNX Fit. Together we rise. We become greater when we rise together. As the phoenix rises from the ashes, our mission is to provide fuel for greatness to live in victory every day. With our unique position as brand ambassadors, we here at the Monster's Lair can help directly in our listeners' daily health goals by providing you, the listener, with this special promo code. This code is TMLFNX20. With it, you can save 15% off any purchase you make from fnxfit.com. Once again, that code is T. MLFNX20. Go to FNXFit.com and check it out now. Thank you for all of your support.
0: Let's be clear liquid death is a completely unnecessary approach to bottled water. In fact, they strive to be unnecessary in everything they do. Because unnecessary things tend to be far more interesting, fun, hilarious, captivating, memorable, exciting, and cult-worthy than necessary things. For example, here's a short list. Unnecessary things. Smashing a guitar on stage and lighting it on fire. Jumping over 14 Greyhound buses on a vintage motorcycle. And cat videos. Here's a list of some unnecessary some necessary things. Breathing, driving the speed limit, and colonoscopies. Liquid Death was started with the totally evil plan to make people laugh and get more of them to drink more water more often. How? By taking the world's healthiest beverage and making it just as unnecessarily entertaining as the unhealthy brands across energy drinks, beer, chips, and candy. Most products in the health and wellness space are all marketed with aspirational fitness models and airbrushed celebrities. And many of us are fucking tired of it. Why should unhealthy products be the only brands with permission to be loud, fun, and weird? And let's be honest, almost all marketing and branding is just theater. So... They're going to treat our theater like a movie theater, and have more fun with it. As longtime creative weirdos, they feel that positive, healthy change doesn't have to be boring in artless. If you want to have a bottled water at a concert, in a bar, at a party, in your car, or anywhere, it shouldn't have to also mean drinking from a plastic bottle that isn't actually recyclable, recyclable, and eventually ends up in the ocean. As they continue to bring their unnecessarily awesome and infinitely recyclable bottled water option to more people, they are equally as excited to use their healthy water brand to help fund and elevate weird art, music, and entertainment that most big corporate brands would never touch. Much like Liquid Death, this ad is completely unnecessary, as Liquid Death is not even an official sponsor of the show. With that being said, I fucking love them anyway. So much so, in fact, I sold my soul to their company in exchange for joining the Liquid Death Country Club, an exclusive members-only fan club of Liquid Death Mountain Water. In the club, you will have exclusive emails sent your way for discounts, offers, merchandise, and special events. Well worth the price of one measly human soul that, let's be honest, I really wasn't using anyway. Go check out liquiddeath.com now and check out this completely unnecessary brand and order some delicious, thirst-murdering, death-to-plastic-dealing, eco-friendly, 100% recyclable mountain water fresh from the Alps today. Now also available in the sparkling water option. Go and murder your thirst now.
1: There the can.
0: Okay ladies and gentlemen You are brave enough to dive into the depths Come visit me in the monster's lair And make it out safely on the other side I will now unleash your shackles Allow you to stand up And allow you to now be free to escape the monster's lair